your question about if we've got such low unemployment, why are we so concerned about immigration? Because our fear is not based on today. It never is. If you're afraid of spiders, it isn't because today you walked around a corner and you said, whoa, look at that bug. Oh, I'm going to decide to be afraid of that one now. It has something to do with what happened in your childhood when your mom screamed at it or it crawled over your face in your crib or it's your fear is not based on today's values. It's based on something that happened in the past. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and... Jeff McClure. I just, just saying that we're back and that's going to be exciting economic terms where we may say things like uncorrelated asset classes affect the efficient frontier by making portfolio less volatile. Very exciting things like that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, neither, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is, and this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> It already has self-destructed because it's too old. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. I want to break down inflation. Yeah, you want to, let's use the word decompose. You're very good at, I mean, if we're going to rot inflation, nobody likes it. So let's rot it. Decompose okay. that inflation. This comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and Moody's Analytics who do very good work on this. We just had a year-over-year -year inflation rate of 8.5% reported. Now, we can say with a great deal of confidence what the components are internally that caused that historical inflation number. And here's how it breaks down. 3.5% of that 8.3.5 points of that 8.5. In other words, it would have been 5% without this one thing, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We can look at the prices that jumped when Russia invaded Ukraine on what items they rose on suddenly. And we can say that is a contributor to inflation. And it only the only thing that changed that caused that price to go up was Russia invading Ukraine. So three and a half percent, uh, three and a half points of the 8.5, that's Russia invading Ukraine. The COVID-19 pandemic, 2%, two points. Why? Stress supply chains, the reopening effect, and labor shortages. And one more piece. That Extra stimulus. There's a lot of money sitting in bank No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that, that coming? That's no, coming? Well, I'll get there. Okay, Be patient. Go ahead. Go ahead. Be patient. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, not counting any plans, stimulus plans, or anything else, raised the cost of living, the consumer price index, by two points. 
So now, if we take out the COVID-19 pandemic, we take out the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have dropped inflation by 5.5%, 5.5 points from that 8.5. So we're still at three. This is what's interesting. The American Rescue Plan, which is the third wave of stimulus that you're talking about, raised inflation by 0.1 points. In other words, instead of being 8.5% over the last year, it would have been 8.4. That's all. Housing raised it by 0.6 points. Why? Why is why is housing up so high? That one is we could do a whole radio program on that. But suffice to say, during the 2007 through 2009 collapse and the collapse that followed in real estate, we weren't building houses in the United States. Many of the people, the tradesmen on whom we depend to build houses were older. That whole industry isn't something that very many people go to school to learn. Instead of going to school to learn it, what they do is they apprentice. As a matter of fact, they literally, if you're a plumber, you can't be a full-blown plumber unless you've been an apprentice. Um, you can't uh, do a lot of the trades, electrician, plumbing, a lot of things. You simply can't do them unless you are apprenticed and they didn't become journeymen and they didn't whatever that whole system broke down and as a result when we decided to start building houses again and people started buying houses again there's a critical shortage of people to buy them now another element in the affordable affordable housing crisis obviously comes back to the pandemic and that there was a sudden there was but, but it's all mixed in there the shortage of lumber uh the cost of lumber which by the way has come back down now uh but the big one was the fact that we are on a rebound from a crisis and we lost a lot of skilled labor. Yeah. And the other thing is we have a critical shortage in the United States of unskilled labor. Um, back in the end of the 1990s, the beginning of 2000s, if you went to a construction site for a house, there was a high probability that you would see a relatively large number of people with dark skins who didn't speak English but only spoke Spanish. They, most of them were not legally in the United States, and they were the ma much of the manual labor that was building those houses. Most of those have gone away. Now, I didn't dig into and really couldn't comment on why they aren't here when I, people I, are telling me they're flooding across the border. I, I can tell you because they're not there. I, I'll, I'll lay this out very quickly. Demographically speaking, early 21st century we had about 11.5 million illegal immigrants in the United States. About 8.5 million were from the country of Mexico. A very large percentage of them were in uh, residential construction. Um, and their age was in the mid-50s. Mm. The Great Recession hit at the same time that the wealth in Mexico has come up because manufacturing jobs, a lot of other jobs are available there that were not there before. Education's come up. Um, a lot of the people that were here illegally working on houses were also illiterate even in Spanish. Uh, where So now the Great Recession hit. We stopped building houses. Um, Ten years later, demand for building houses started going up. They're now in their mid-60s. And the wealth in Mexico has increased at the same time. They didn't come back. The vast majority of the illegal population is no longer from Mexico. It's now from further in South America, Venezuela, Colombia, Panama. There's not a single country that takes the lead as far as a majority goes. You have to add countries together to get a majority anymore. 
Mm. So that, that's the demographic difference. We don't have that cheap supply of labor that was actually fairly skilled cheap labor. We're missing that. Uh, now back to you on the same on the inflation side. Well, the other contributors, possible contributors to inflation, after we've gone through the invasion, Russian invasion of Ukraine, the COVID nineteen pandemic, the the housing crisis, the affordable housing crisis, and the American Rescue Plan are energy regulation, money supply, and corporate price gouging, all of which have contributed zero to inflation. Now that people will argue with that, but the, the numbers and the data are there. In other words, the money supply is equivalent to what we had before we had the inflation. So the right. money supply didn't go up yeah, and to create the inflation. That, well, let, let, me, let me put it in a different way, because looking at Fred's economic data, that's the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. Um, and they, they have a measurement that they put out there for what's called M2, which is the money supply. That's, that's cash and cash deposits and savings accounts and money markets and, uh, time deposits. It isn't all cash. There's still some things like longer term CDs that aren't part of this, but stuff that you can get to quickly pre pandemic January, 2020. There was about $15.5 trillion sitting in M2. We're now at $21.5 trillion. So that's $6 trillion more. The money supply really, really increased. It increased, okay. but the spending of that money did not. This is the most important part. The amount of money out there is not as important as the amount of money that's trading hands, the money that's circulating. Our savings rate during the pandemic was up at 35%. Pre-pandemic, the savings rate, and by the way, I'm getting this data, the savings rate data, is also coming from the Fred. Uh, and savings rate pre-pandemic was 7.3%, okay? It went up to 35% in the pandemic. The money that came in didn't get spent. We actually had a little bit of deflation at the beginning of the pandemic because people didn't know. You guys can throw yourselves back there. It wasn't that long ago. Remember, you get the stimulus check and you didn't go out and immediately buy a television. You didn't go out and immediately buy a new microwave. You said, I don't know what's about to happen. That's staying in the bank. So our savings rate increased to a level that's never been seen before. We didn't measure it uh, beyond 19, the, the late 1950s. Uh, our first measurement starts in 1959. We've never measured anything even half as high as we got. And that, that includes all the time since 1959. So all this new money that came in didn't add to inflation. It added to bank accounts. And we saw, uh, we saw credit cards get paid off at a, at a rate that's just never been seen before as well. When, a, when you pay a credit card back, it doesn't put the money in circulation. If everybody's paying off their credit card at the same time, it just pays the debt back. That money then is saying, all right, well, somebody else might want to borrow on their credit card. But if everybody's paying down on their credit card, there's less money on credit cards. So spending dropped and credit card debt dropped and money supply went up. That's not a sign of inflation. Now, for the first time, this, this came out this last week, we had the savings rate has dropped, but it hasn't dropped a lot. And the money supply has dropped, 
but it hasn't dropped a lot. It hasn't dropped anywhere near as much as inflation has gone up. So it isn't that we're spending a lot of extra money. It's supply chain stuff. And that's the thing where I wanted to come back to the supply, to the money supply, is that the, there's a lot more money in bank accounts right now than there used to be, which is another good sign that we're not about to hit a recession. And it's, the spending isn't going up anywhere near as fast as our savings increased. So when people are spending more than they're making, which is what we're seeing in the reports recently, where are they getting that money? Because credit cards are up a little bit during that time period. Well, the bank accounts are down a little bit too, but we still have a lot of extra reserve there. Okay, now I'm going to hand it back to you just to say that just because the money supply goes up, it's the momentum of money that causes inflation. When people are just spending it fast, we're not seeing that. Okay, back to you. What I was saying is money supply has not contributed to inflation. Right. That's simple. In other words, yes, the American Rescue Plan added one-tenth of one point, but the increase in the money supply because of the velocity, and that's what Jake is talking about, has decreased dramatically. In other words, money's just sitting there. Um, energy regulation has not increased inflation. Corporate price gouging just hasn't happened. Uh, corporations, as a matter of fact, the reverse of that happened. Their profit margins narrowed significantly as inflation has come along. So what does that leave us with? An underlying inflation of 2.3%, a natural inflation without the extraordinary events that have occurred, two of them, the pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine, of 2.3%, uh, which is what the Fed pretty much was targeting. They wanted to two, two and a half percent inflation. So therein is inflation broken down. The biggest chunk of it, 41% of the inflation that we are currently experiencing is generated by Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and the secondary and tertiary and quaternary effects of that. And there's really, um, really easy ways that, that you all can test that. If you, if I, I don't blame you, if you want to blame the president, that's fine. It's a, it's an easy outgo. If you have a lot of stress, just blame it on Biden. That's fine. It's not realistic, but you can do it. We won't even get upset when you do it. But if it were Biden's fault, we wouldn't be seeing this, the higher level inflation that we're seeing in the UK and across Europe. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing I'm going to talk about. You, the United Kingdom's inflation year over year just came in at 9.1%. And they didn't have the American Rescue Plan, and they don't have President Biden as their... Matter of fact, they have a conservative who, in many ways, is closer to President Trump's view of the world than Joe Biden's view of the world. And they're still um, having... It, it, what we're saying is you are allowed to blame the president because people. It's, it's, it's he's... That's part of the job of being the president is you get the blame for this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you go ahead and do it if it makes you feel better, but it's not realistic. And when you see the sticker that says, I did that at the gas pump. And I, by the way, I've started to see shirtless Putin stickers doing the same thing at the gas pump, mm. which is that could be hilarious. That, that's I true. Get them both together. Uh, yeah, Putin did do it. But if you want to blame Biden, that's fine, too. It's not like he's being an, a terribly effective president. He's not even able to get his own party to move on things. If you want to blame him, you can. <laughs> it's just not mathematically sound. That's he, I, Basically, what I say to people that say, thanks, Joe Biden, is, man, you're giving him a lot more power than he has. 
he wishes he could control inflation right now. Man, does he wish it. Uh, but so does anybody. You give him the power in your own mind, that's fine. Um, but that's not the way it works. Oh, we got another question that came in. And I think it's related to what you were just talking about uh, from Dan. Uh, it says, uh, you used to talk about robot home building. Is that has that idea come to an end? Absolutely not. Um, it is still quite expensive, but a lot of money is being spent on it. Um, and some of the best action on that subject is right in Austin, Texas. There's a uh, 3D printing home production site manufacturing some parts of a house externally is getting more and more automated. So the trusses for a roof, for instance, uh, aren't put together on site. They come on a truck all stacked together, kind of upright. I'm sure people have seen them on the road. You see a construction house, you see uh, these trusses come in. Well, who puts those together? Well, it's still mostly people. But more and more of that is an automated machine cutting the boards to the right length or uh, angling them properly to be attached. And, and more and more, there's, the machines are doing it themselves. So it's not just 3D printed things. The automation is taking off in construction that you see right now. There's other aspects of it that are, are becoming more and more automated in that people aren't leashed to uh, an air compressor for their nail guns anymore. They've got battery-powered nail guns, or, uh, and that's increasing productivity. But when you have a, a, a labor shortage like we do, it's still going to be expensive. So there's still money available to be put toward automating. Robots will be building the houses in the future. There's very little doubt about that. Um, and that's, it sounds like a promissory statement, but the reality is there. We're on the trajectory where the robots will be doing. Now they're probably not going to look like a humanoid robot. They're probably not going to be an iRobot Asimov concept where this humanoid robot is out there banging with a hammer. Um, it's much more likely that there's going to be a machine that has a nail gun built into it that just brings itself to the right place and puts the right nails in the right spot and um, props up boards at the right angle. It's, we're not that far away from it. I would say 10 years before we have, uh, on, at least on the large home building projects, not individual houses, but more like the big developments done by publicly traded companies, you're going to see a lot more robotic manufacturing there, a lot more pre-cut boards coming out to the house labeled properly. There's a lot of money being spent on that right now because it, it, people have a demand for housing and now we're starting to see how, how purchases drop because it's getting so expensive to buy a house. House prices are way up. We didn't build for a long time. Interest rates are way up. How do you afford a house? Well, the way we get to it, you still have a demand and people are still willing to pay. They're just not willing to pay that much. Well, now you have to figure out how to make it cheaper. And that's where the home builders have to go is that you've got a sustained group of people that are willing to buy houses. They want to buy those houses, but they're delaying and slowing down the purchase because it's so expensive. Well, the prices have to come down. And uh, this is true about fighting inflation across the board. Why, why is it that the Federal Reserve raising interest rates would stop inflation when it's not a money supply issue, when it's not a 
I mean, it, the reality is that raising inflation makes it more, or raising interest rates makes it more expensive than we want to transition to, more expensive than we can afford realistically to do. And that causes us to, to lower the demand. It's actually literally called destruction of demand academically when the interest rates get raised like that. They destroy demand by saying it's too expensive for you to want this go away. Uh, and people adjust their, their goals based on that. We're starting to see that. And the Federal Reserve, that's the biggest tool the Federal Reserve has is to destroy demand. You don't really want this. It's too expensive. Um, and I kind of hit the only answer to that. Can you talk to the robotic home building at all? It's going to happen. It's already happening to some degree. Some of the factory built items such as trusses are literally put together by robots in factories today. As far as the concept of a house there being a slab and the robots then appear and build the house from zero, that's probably quite a ways down the road. It's very complex. Robots are very, very good at doing repetitive, simple tasks. Um, nailing houses together is not a repetitive, simple task. I think that there's a great future in building modular houses in factories and moving the rooms or walls uh, to construction sites. And we'll probably get there. And one of the reasons we'll get there is labor is getting harder and harder to harder to find to build houses with and less people have to work out in the hot sun in the summertime, the less expensive it's going to be able to be to build houses. Uh, so we're getting there. It'll be a while. There is one place you're going, probably the first place although you're experiencing robotics right now, you don't know it. Many Amazon distribution centers are filled with robots, more of them all the time. And the fact that you can order something from Amazon and get it the next day is largely a result of robotics. Where you will probably first notice robotics as a significant advance is going on at a very high rate of speed. And that is, we've talked about that for years, that's 18-wheelers on interstates. Right. Uh, long before you're going to see a lot of robotic cars in every city, you will probably encounter an 18 wheeler that is, that doesn't have a driver because a well-marked interstate, and by the way, Texas is, has a shortage of those. I-35 does not count as a well-marked interstate. I want to add because it, there's places where the side, the lines on the left or the right or the center have faded to the point where you basically can't see them anymore, and so neither can the computer. But well-marked interstate highways in clear weather, there have already been quite a few experiments with trucks running that route. And a matter of fact, there are places in the United States within a single state where the state has authorized it, where 18-wheelers are routinely running a specific route between two points in good weather in daylight with no drivers. Yeah, I'm going to throw this in as a statistic. I talked earlier in the hour about, uh, and last hour, about gasoline usage being down on average um, this year based on the average of 2017 to 2019. It's just nowhere near as high, except when you're talking about diesel. Diesel's up because we've got more trucks on the road, and that's a big component. So that when you're talking about robotics and and self-driving automobiles, it will definitely be most profitable in trucking. And I would see, I would expect, I'm already seeing self-driving trucks on the road. Um, it's just, there's still people inside them. 
Um, it will eventually just be the trucks. Um, we have another question that just came in. All right, you're getting them and I'm not, so go well, for you, it. You should have that one too. This one's from uh, Sunny. How has Russia been able to keep their ruble value stable even with the sanctions and have less inflation than the West? Well, the first part of your question is absolutely correct. They have kept the ruble value very stable, but they have not had less inflation than the West. Their inflation is running in the 30 plus percent range right now. Um, so how is that possible when the ruble value on the foreign exchange market has held stable? Because people in Russia don't buy the ruble on the foreign exchange market. Uh, and that's really kind of a complicated answer. But when the value of the dollar goes up against the euro, it doesn't change the value that you're paying for in Texas for a pack of gum. Um, so the ruble value on the foreign market staying stable, I'm sure you'll be able to add to this. It's manipulation by the Russian government. It's very clearly that. When we got upset at China decades ago for manipulating their currency to keep its exchange value locked to the dollar, the government of Russia would produce more, uh, is producing more rubles and less rubles and, I'll, and sucking rubles off the market or putting more rubles on the market um, because they are their own central bank. They can do that. Usually, when we, when we talk about the actions of a central bank, our Federal Reserve, the, the Bank of England, these sorts of things, their job is to protect us from inflation internally. So generally, when they're buying like a mortgage-backed security, when they were doing that, they needed to make sure they were buying it from somebody in the United States and it was a U.S. mortgage because otherwise they're manipulating our currency on the foreign exchange. Well, Russia's but, not doing it that way right now. The Russians have not been able to keep their ruble value stable. Um, it appears to be stable because the it's got, like we talked about alternative investments. If, if there's very little buying or selling of rubles, then you don't know what the price is. But when you have 17% inflation, wasn't that what you said? 17? I know that's what it's I read up, recently. Yeah, 17% if you take out the volatiles. Uh, it's at so 30% with the volatiles. The volatiles okay, being so, food and energy. So let's, let's just say 30% because 8.1 includes the volatiles in the United States, or 8.5. They're... The ruble is dropping in value at 30%, has dropped in value 30% over the last year. I don't think, if you're buying things with it, I don't think that's stable. And um, there, yes, there are people, there are countries who are buying oil still from Russia, a lot of oil from Russia. So the Russians are still getting their rubles bought because they're insistent they won't sell oil for anything other than rubles right now. Uh, and they've cut off oil, for example, and natural gas to Denmark because Denmark says our contract says we can buy it in euros or dollars and we're not going to pay rubles for it. Not that Denmark is going to be hurting because they also produce natural gas. But it's, it's artificial like almost everything else in Europe. There's the answer to that. Yeah. Roger asks, with an extremely low unemployment rate, one would think people would not fear loss of their jobs due to immigration. Is it just xenophobia that is preventing a rational immigration policy. I wouldn't call it xenophobia. Uh, I would call it cultural. There is, the reality is President Reagan had a great immigration policy he would love for Congress to have passed and they didn't. It basically said 
two things. First, let's assess what jobs we need to fill in the United States that we can't fill because we don't have enough people, particularly enough people, to do outside hot weather manual labor. Secondly, let's issue work permits to come into the United States to do those jobs and track those people and make sure they leave when the time's up. And third, let's have a rational policy for bringing in people based on our economy as long-term working residents with a path to citizenship. And if we were to do that, we would do a couple of things. We would dramatically reduce illegal immigration because a very large portion, and it used to be the vast majority, I don't know if it's still the vast majority, of people who, who illegally enter the United States do so to fill jobs that are available in the United States so they can make money and send money home. And generally to go well, back home when they're done. Right. So if we were to do that in a, in a controlled rather than an uncontrolled manner, which is what Ronald Reagan wanted to do, that would be tremendously advantageous to the United States economy. It would also be tremendously advantageous across the board everywhere. The other thing is we simply do not have enough room in our immigration laws to keep our population growing. We need to have a growing population because, let's face it, the other thing I wanted to talk about this, I don't know if we're going to have time, is the Social Security issues that are coming up and what's right. likely to happen and what you can do about it. I think it's very important to talk about that. Let me, let me hit one part of this question and then hand it right back to you because I think Social Security growing population is it's vital conversation. Your question about if we've got such low unemployment, why are we so concerned about immigration? Because our fear is not based on today. It never is. If you're afraid of spiders, it isn't because today you walked around a corner and you said, whoa, look at that bug. Oh, I'm going to decide to be afraid of that one now. It has something to do with what happened in your childhood when your mom screamed at it or it crawled over your face in your crib. Or it's, Your fear is not based on today's values. It's based on something that happened in the past. And in the past... There's some very, very clear evidence, very clear evidence in the early 21st century that a lot of the re residential construction jobs were simply taken from people that were still doing them. And they had to go find something else to do because they needed to get paid on a minimum wage where these illegal immigrants did not. Now, it generally led them to go into a more skilled profession like carpentry rather than just framework for a house or plumbing, or electrician work, because you have all kinds of documentation requiring you to get bonded and to have apprenticeships and to have a certification of some kind that illegals couldn't do. But it was a real deal. People lost their jobs to yes. illegal immigrants, and they still remember that. They still feel it. I agree with you. And that's, the, that's a big chunk of why illegal immigration is still so feared, is because it's not well, people aren't afraid of it because they think that somebody's going to choose somebody from but Mexico is going to come and take their IT job. It isn't just illegal immigration that a lot of people are afraid of that I've spoken with. It's legal immigration, legal, low skill immigration, yeah. because a lot of the jobs, particularly up in the Northeast in the factory jobs, they saw people coming in who may have been here perfectly legally, but they had very low education and they took over assembly line jobs in factories working for a lot less than the union employees were working for before. Union employees were earning sometimes $80 an hour doing repetitive work on an assembly line 
because of over a long period of time, their wages had just kept going up. They had great health care benefits. They had great retirement benefits, but they were also bankrupting their employers. When the bankruptcy, for example, of General Motors went through, a lot of previously white, middle, blue-collar workers were replaced with brown-skinned, blue-collar workers who would work for a lot less money, and that made them very angry. There's a third one in there, though, that I think is very important to understand, and I've had several people say this to me. It's anecdotal, but I think it's real. A guy told me the other day, and I think it's an accurate observation, I have been to Mexico. I have been to Central America. I have seen that society, and I don't want our society to look like that society. If they all come here and become the majority, our society will look like their corrupt society, and I don't want that. And, and we can say very clearly that that's not the case. When you look down at the, the valley, the Rio Grande Valley, and you look where the border is, and you look at the population in that, in that area, well, just the population in Texas in general is 54% Hispanic. That's, do you, if you look around and you say, I don't like our values today because what? Well, I mean, Texas is doing pretty well. <laughs> uh, it's doing really, really well. It doesn't have, it, we're all Americans. And that's the point, is that just because someone looks a certain way or they're from another country, economically speaking, it's good to have an influx of people with low skills repetitively, repetitively because their kids become high-skilled American workers and that continues forever. And Ronald Reagan said, now, this remember, this is back in the early 1980s. The typical Mexican, the typical Mexican, and he used Mexican rather than Hispanic when he said it, immigrant is a perfect fit for the Republican Party. He wants to work hard, make a profit, take care of his kids, and doesn't want the government taking his money from him. And I think that is a completely accurate statement. The people who leave wherever they were in many cases and come here and set up businesses and work hard. And by the way, there was an interesting survey I read um, in the last election. This is going to blow some people's minds. Over half of the people who identified as, as Hispanic in Texas voted Republican. Right. And that, which, the Repu- which the Democrats are shocked at, but I'm not. I'm not either because the, 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 it's Texas. When, when you immigrate, when a family immigrates to Texas, and that's implying that all Hispanics in Texas are immigrants, and that's wrong. No, we're the immigrants. We're the, first. Yeah, the, 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 vice, the first vice president of the Republic of Texas was of Mexican birth. So people need to recognize that this, you know, immigrant is, is a kind of a loose definition here. But when, when we look at the work ethic of Texas versus the work ethic of Oklahoma. That's quantifiable. You can look at it in employment. You can look at it the way we do our taxes. We can look at a lot of things that say we're more productively oriented than status quo oriented in Texas. So a population that comes into that culture and picks it up tends to be more like that culture. And when it brings an already deeply religious cast that believes in family values and that sort of thing, it tends to go with the political party that represents that side the most. So when you have a, a very productive religious group of people, of course they would go to be Republicans unless you just turn them completely off from the Republican Party. 
And I can also tell you that I experienced a shock several years ago when we were living in Georgetown. Late in the early morning hours, I went into Walmart because it was open 24 hours a day. And I wanted to buy something. And as I walked into Walmart, all the TV sets, which are all over the place, were broadcasting in Spanish. The announcements on the PA system were in Spanish. And the boxes, you know how Walmart stocks stacks the cardboard boxes up there rather than the item that, that you pull down and that's what you want to buy, were printed in Spanish on one side and English on the other. And the Spanish side was facing out. So I literally was in Georgetown, Texas, going to a Walmart in the United States of America, couldn't understand what was being said on the PA system, the televisions, or read what was written on the boxes. And that was a shock. And I must admit that is a problem. I, we have a, he has a, Jake has a sister. I have a daughter, coincidentally, who lives in Denmark. If you want to become a Denmark citizen, a Danish citizen, one of the first things you have to do is pass a proficiency test in Danish or it's no go. I don't have any problem with that personally. Yeah. So, so that would no, require. No, that means everybody, all the, everybody who enters the United States must learn to speak Danish, right? Right. Everybody in the United States must take a Danish uh, test for proficiency. No. no I, so the, the idea here is if we want to set a language standard or a culture standard, we could do that. I mean, the Canadians did it. The French do it. Um, does that prevent companies from being profitable sometimes? Yeah. There are places in Quebec where if you want to start a business, you've got to have people that know how to speak French or you can't start a business. And it's not, I mean, you, it's supposed to be English and French or the common language, but you have to do both. So there are dangers associated with selecting a language and sticking to it. But if we want to preserve a culture, we can do that with laws. What we're trying to do right now with immigration is we've got clearly broken laws. Nobody thinks that they are correct. If you ask Democrats, they say they're broken. If you ask Republicans, they say they're broken. But we can't come to a conclusion on how to fix them because so we're, we're so worried about stopping the violation of that law that we're not fixing the law. That's a problem. And we're almost out of time. And man, talk yeah. about a controversial subject. It's purely economics, we wouldn't be talking about ethics or language. We'd just be saying what's profitable. Um, it gets into weird states there. But we're about out of time for this week, and we'll be back next week. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually do the physical management of assets and the digital asset management um, for uh, portfolio management and advice for people that generally have a high net worth. Uh, but you can talk to us and we'll individualize our advice to you. Uh, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, this weekend we have voicemail, but during the week we have real live people that answer this phone. The local number is... 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that line toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN for those of you that still have a landline. Uh, if you'd like to go to our webpage, you can read all kinds of stuff about us. The webpage is tpwc.com or thepersonalwealthcoach.com. You can read our newsletter. You can sign up to have it sent to you there. You can read it going back lots of years, see what we had to say in the past. You can listen to programs from the radio going back lots of years. You can get links to podcasts, contact us through the contact form or jeff at tpwc.com or jake 
at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening this week. I hope the rest of your weekend is amazing.